We're looking at the uh, prophecy of Hosea. Three messages, and uh, this is the second message. And we're looking at this passage that I read to you. Chapter 3, the Lord said to me, Go, show your love to your wife again, though she's loved by another and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites. He's the spokesman for God then in very urgent times. There's an intensity about his ministry. It was demanded because of these dangerous uh, end days in which Hosea lived. So he focused his ministry on what was the most important issue facing the backsliding and the defiant people of God. And that was their relationship with God himself. And we face uh, the same battle keeping our relationship with God central in our own lives. The professing church has broken its relationship with God. And we are to inform uh, men and women that this is the case. And we do it in two ways. We do it one sinner to another, and we do it close up and personal. We are to make the church aware that not only have we broken God's law, but that we have broken God's heart. And in a strange way, this particular message is good news for them. It's the best news that they could hear. It is good like the Friday on which our Redeemer shed his blood. Uh, It is called Good Friday because of the good substitutionary work that the Lord Jesus did. And our declaration of what it means then on the basis of the cross to have peace with God and reconciliation and forgiveness of sins because of him. The God whom we have offended has provided a comprehensive and all-embracive solution for our lostness. And the church is called to announce this reality and to offer a savior freely to all men and women and boys and girls. And now, uh, as we uh, proceed this morning, we are going to see that Hosea goes on to say that though our relationship with God is a broken relationship, we are still loved. This is the heart of the prophet's message and the heart of what the Bible has to say. Both in heaven and on earth, there is one superb and absolute reality. It is an enduring and unchanging and eternal reality. It is, in other words, the covenant of grace that God has made with sinners. It is the saving love of God for all his own. And alas, it can become ordinary to us. We can develop a barren familiarity with it. Christmas is uh, less than a month away, and if we hear on the radio a rare message about the coming of the baby into the stable at Bethlehem, then every visitor will be told it's all because of God's love for us. And everyone yawns. It is wallpaper religion. And the songs that go with it are the background music to supermarket shopping, or they are the gaps and jingles in the classical music on Classic FM. It is what everyone expects. All the land knows backwards. The vague and unspecified love of God. It is comfy slipper theology. It is a warm drink before bedtime doctrine. 
It is the comforting message of our one annual visit to church, midnight mass for the inebriated. That should not be. Grace should always be amazing. And we are to labor to get our hearts affected by the love of God. So what does Hosea do now in bringing God freshly and powerfully to the people in reminding him of his most glorious attribute, his love? Two things. The first thing, then, God's love for sinners is an impossibility. Our culture doesn't think like that. Man's assumption is that God is love. It's one of those self-evident truths that everyone knows. And one reason for that is because of an earlier grace in, in our culture, that for almost 1,900 years, there have been Christians in Wales. In other cu- cultures, like India and the Middle East, men don't think like that. God is an avenger. God has his own way of judging mankind. But we are long familiar with the New Testament story. In our principality, we've had tradesmen that have come from the Middle East, sailed across the Mississippi, through the Straits of Gibraltar, up the coastline of Spain and France, into the Irish Sea. And they've come here then to Wales, and they've traded for uh, skins and for Welsh gold, and they've sold... uh, silk and wine to the people here in Cardigan Bay and there are believers among them and those believers have told the people in Wales then about the love of a personal God, a God who's made himself known to men and women by his son Jesus Christ. It's little wonder that 2,000 years almost have passed and uh, the novelty has worn off. Of course God loves, people say. What's new about that? Now, what does Hosea say? He raises the question of how in the world is it possible for God to love us? How can it happen? The first great prophet before all the others was Moses, and he laid down God's law. And in one part, in Deuteronomy 21 and verse 18, he decreed that parents who have a son who is stubborn and rebellious, could at the last resort bring a prosecution against him. They took their case to the elders in the city gate. And the boy would then be confronted with a capital offense. He could be stoned to death for evil contempt and violence and defiance against God towards those that he was told very plainly in the Ten Commandments he should honor. And that is the background then to Hosea as he speaks, for example, in chapter 11. God himself, the father of Israel, is coming with his lawsuit, his prosecution of his children for, his, for their treatment of him. He's bringing his case against them. But this is the amazing way in which he addresses them in Hosea 11. When Israel was a child, I loved him out of Egypt. I called my son. I brought him out of slavery into the promised land. But the more I called Israel, the further they went from me. They sacrificed to the Baals and burned 
incense to images. It was I who taught Ephraim, that is Israel, to walk, taking them by the hands. But they did not realize it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. I lifted the yoke from their neck and bent down to feed them. See, he says, all that I have done. Such a model father, so patient, so loving. Here is a God who bends down because we are so little and we stumble and and God holds our hands and he teaches us how we may walk. He helps us. But what are the consequences for Israel, God's son, in rejecting such kindness? He says, going on then, verse 5, will they not return to Egypt? Back to slavery. Will not Assyria rule over them because they refuse to repent? Swords will flash in their cities, will destroy the bars of their gates and put an end to their plans. My people are determined to turn from me. That's what he says. It's not the first time that one of the prophets has warned the people of the consequences of their Baal worship. They were an obstinate people. And as reluctantly as any father would pick up a rod and would uh, chastise his son, God reluctantly, after all the prophets have been gone and many have been stoned to death by this defiant people, God then picks up Assyria as his rod and he comes and he chastises his people for their sin. God says to them, My son, had no cause to turn against me as he did. And yet from the kings to the beggars I've looked, and there's nothing in all the land but hostility towards me. So it was a pretty open and shut case. The jury of elders at the city gates are not going to debate for a few days then whether the boy is in the wrong, that his conduct is a a lawbreaker's conduct, They're not going to send as the jury's out uh, for food to be sent in and give them instructions that when they go home for the night they're not to uh, uh, talk to anyone about this. Nothing like that. They, They all know how badly Israel has behaved. The hills know it. The trees know it. The cities and the fields know all about it across the land. Not a prophet who testified said anything from that witness box, but that this people were cold and hard. This boy was a a terrible, defiant, wicked boy. It was an open and shut case. And so there should be condemnation. Stones would soon fly through the air. Swords would flash in the cities. Assyria was going to be God's most high executioner. God's people were determined to turn from him. And then, calling on Jehovah when the siege engines finally work and the wall collapses and there's a breach and the Assyrian army goes flooding in with their swords to pillage and rape and destroy and take plunder. Then, uh, calling on the name of Jehovah to help. Well, that would receive a mute response from a God that they had ignored for generations it's over it's all over 
when every factor is taken into consideration, it's finished for the northern kingdom. They filled to the brim the jar of their iniquities. And God says, enough, off to slavery in Assyria, never to return. And so you read through Hosea 11. And then, then you come to verse 11, to verse 8. And where in the world did verse 8 come from? How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like Kadama? How can I make you like Zeboim? My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger. Nor will I turn and devastate Ephraim. For I am God and not man. The Holy One among you. I will not come in wrath. What's this? This father with the support of his wife, has dragged this mean, despising son to the city gates. And he has coldly and clearly explained the conduct of this evil boy to the fathers. They've heard all the damning evidence that he has brought against him. And then there's a change. The father's demeanor, so set, begins to wobble. His voice goes up an octave. Tears start to run down his cheeks. He halts the proceedings. What's this? He's actually dropping his case against the boy. He's actually weeping over the prodigal, this heartbreaker. He says to him, I can't do this to you. Come home, son. They've got the stones ready to hurl at him. They have the cart ready to take his body down to the dump. And then the father's whole tone changes. Can't hand you over to the executioners. We're going home to your mother. And the prosecution ends and the trial is over. And the city fathers get up and they go home and they wonder why, why the case ever came as far as it did. See my point. Where does the love of God come from? It doesn't come from us. You consider the narratives in the book of Acts. It wasn't that suddenly the tough Philippian jailer became a sweet and gentle and a broken man. And then God loved him and saved him. He was about to kill himself like he'd killed many other people. And he was told, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll be saved. And he did. And his household. It wasn't that Saul of Tarsus made a decision that Jesus is the Messiah. He was on his way to Damascus. He was breathing out threatenings and slaughters against the church to imprison, to stone men to death. And it was there and then in that fierce, persecuting mode that God, in love, met Saul on God's own mission of mercy to him. 
And at that moment when it seemed that God's rod would be lifted up and he would smite him, God spoke tenderly to him. Saul. Saul. Why? Why are you kicking against the goats? The love of God overwhelmed the Philippian jailer. The love of God overwhelmed Saul of Tarsus. And here in the prophecy, it overwhelms Hosea in everything he says. Here in chapter 11, the Lord is overflowing in love for a people that haven't changed, that are still defiant, that are still recalcitrant. You see, God's love is the least predictable force in the cosmos. It's not like the time of the high tide today. It's not like the hour of the setting of the sun. It's not like the day there will be a full moon this month. The love of God is not something that you can guarantee and take for granted on your way to doing something else that you find more gripping or something else you find more preferable or as the mere framework, oh yes, uh, we live in the love of God and we carry on believing the things we want to believe. Oh yes, there's the love of God. What's on the telly tonight? When it becomes familiar, like the words of mere men, like the daily repeated cliches of the presenter of uh, Bargain Hunt, when it's so familiar to us, then the sheer wonder of God's love vanishes and we have no note of surprise when we sing, and can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Well, of course I've got an interest in the Savior's blood. And that cool acceptance of the costly saving love of the Lord Jesus Christ brings a response of rage in the heart of God. You read about killings and tortures of vulnerable and helpless people every day in the newspapers. You hear of hardened judges who have to sit through trials and have all the evidence brought before them of the butchering of, of a young girl and they can't complete their summing up because they're overwhelmed with what they have seen. God's love is not some postscript that we repeat like the love of God phrase in the benediction to send everybody home again in an ethos of religious complacency so we had a reassurance given to us once again that God is love. God is love. How does that fit in with the concentration camps with Belsen and, and Auschwitz and the ISIS beheadings and the young men and a woman who walk into a pop concert with Kalashnikovs and will shoot scores of young people, unarmed people that they don't know. There's a tension between the anger of God. God is angry with the wicked every day. Angry with all that is mean and, and trashy and cruel 
and merciless and the fact that God is love. And that tension is here in Hosea 11. So that we ask why? Why hasn't God wiped out defiant Baal worshipping Israel? Why this grace? Why this message? All through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation you find sinners not being condemned but pardoned, healed, restored, forgiven. You find Adam and Eve clothed with skins and promise that one of their one of their children in the future is is going to be the seed that will crush the head of the serpent. The maths doesn't work. The, the, the logic doesn't work. God comes to Abram, Abram who has lied about his wife, that she is his sister, so that uh, a man has taken her as his wife. And later Abram takes his wife's maid servant to have a son. And yet God comes to this man, Abraham, and he tells Abraham that he's his son and shield and exceeding great reward. The believing sinner, Abraham, becomes the father of us and of all who believe. Where's the logic of it? How can God say something like that without being an inconsistent God, an indifferent God, a God who shrugs, a God who looks the other way, a double-tongued God, a God then of cosmic malice? This logic is illogical. And you go right through and then you start to look at every single religious leader in the Bible and they are all deeply flawed. The murdering Moses, the adulterous David, the polygamous Solomon, the swearing Peter, the doubting Thomas. You have the same problem with every man jack of them. How can God bless men and women who are serial sinners? It shouldn't happen. Satan himself is perplexed as he looks at God and sees what God does. He doesn't know what to do. The one thing Satan's got is a demonic confidence that the whole bunch are sinners. Am I now, he says, God is holy and just and cannot help them. They're on my side now. They are as lost as I am. They are defiant rebels. That is his strategy. That is his approach. And then he looks at God and he sees a smile on God's face and arms outstretched to welcome them. A recalcitrant and defiant people and God is welcoming them, inviting them to come to himself, forgiving them, blessing them. God must be pulling his hair out. Satan thinks... And you know how we feel about this subject of the love of God. How we are concerned about giving the wrong impression and giving an unbalanced approach just in case some unworthy and indifferent rebel will believe it without repenting and turning. And we want to guard it and we want to safeguard it from misuse. So every time we mention the love of God, we feel we need to mention his wrath in the same breath. 
And yet here in, in Hosea chapter 11, God steps from verse 11, from verse 7, and its decision to judge them, to verse 8, and his self-questioning, how can he give them up? How can I give you up, O Israel? And what Hosea is teaching us is that the love of God has a logic, a logic all of its own. It, it doesn't fit into our categories. It doesn't nicely clip in to our thinking like a piece of Lego clips into another. It transcends our thinking. It defies our vocabulary. It has its own rationale. It has its own activity. When God was sending the people into Canaan, he said to them, when you go into that land, then don't think for a moment, boy, we are a great people, that we've got a land like this, flowing with milk and honey. And we must be bigger, and we must be better than any other nation in the world. Don't start to think like that, he says. That's not the reason. Well, Lord, what is the reason? I tell you, God says, the reason why I set my love upon you is because I loved you. I chose you because I loved you. And that's the reason. Yes, Lord, but why did you love us? I can't tell you that. Maybe you will never, never, never know why my love homed in on you. There's nothing more profound and nothing more absolute and nothing more logical that I can appeal to behind my love for you. My love is the fountainhead. My love is the reason why I chose you and gave you these blessings. It is there in and of itself. The fountain out of which flows all the attributes of God, all his grace, and all his pity, and all his saving work to us is his love. God's judgments may need a reason. God's judgments do need a reason, and the reason is our wickedness. God's compassion needs no reason. He is compassionate because he is compassion. Through all eternity, there was nothing for which God had any cause to show his wrath. In the beginning, the billions and billions of years as we reckon them, God was love. And then there was an angelic rebellion. And then there was the fall of man. But there'd been in all eternity love. The love of the Father for the Son and the Son for the Father. The love of them for the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit's love for them. God simply is love. And there's no reason for it. Except that's his nature. His illimitable love. Vast Unmeasured, boundless, free. I am trying to take your breath away by speaking to you about the inexplicable love of God. I'm trying to show every one of you who sings, Jesus loves me 
This I know, for the Bible tells me so. That in fact you are exhibit A of the fact that God loves. You are exhibit A to the world, to the angels, to demons. You are an example of a living impossibility. We deserve nothing. We should have got nothing. We should be in the dark. We should be on the outside. The only thing that we can hope to get from God is his justice. The only thing we could hope for is a deafening silence. We should be in a dark room. We should be in a little corner. We should be curled up in a fetal position, alone with our guilt. What are we today? Justified. Forgiven for all our sins. Clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Joined to the Lord Jesus. Adopted into the family. Heirs of God. Joint heirs with Christ. A new Lord. A new master. Everything working together for our good. Nothing separating us. From his love, all grace, always abounding towards us. All our needs being richly supplied. Not in the flames of hell in agony. But here in the presence of God. Being reminded once again. How dearly, dearly has he loved us. It's an impossibility. And the second thing I want to say to you is that God's love for sinners is an outrage. We live in a culture that is often outraged about God. It gets angry about hell and the judgment of God. Who is God to tell me what to do? The idea that God has expectations of each one of us is offensive and that God will punish for our rejection of him and his laws is outrageous. The idea that he is going to hold us accountable for our lives by his expectations is scandalous. Hosea would never have understood. It would be totally foreign, such a mentality to him. He would think that the world today is outraged at the wrong attribute of the Almighty. It should be The love of God for us that is outrageous to men. And this is what you meet in Hosea's story. And so let's look at the third chapter of the prophecy. And here again you meet Gomer, the wife of Hosea. And the story of their relationship becomes the structure and the parable and the main theme, the text of all that he has to say to the people and to us. Just like Johnny uh, Erickson Tada and how what happened to her, the diving accident, the broken back, the paraplegic condition for the rest of her life became her story, her ministry, her message. That you can trust a God who allows this, who decrees that this should happen. 
Hosea and Israel is a living parable of God and his people. Gomer, you know, became a serial adulteress. And then she became a prostitute. And then the relationship was over. Hosea had had enough. Divorce. Now, there's nothing outrageous there, is there? If you had a son and his wife treated him the way that Goma treated Hosea, then most of you would think, he's incredible, the patience he's shown towards her. You would think he didn't divorce her soon enough. And if she were a member of the church, then you would expect some elder's action. And uh, the congregation would back you that there should be some word of separation, of disapproval and censure because of this serial adultery. And nobody would be surprised at that. It's because of the high view of marriage that we Christians have. There is nothing outrageous in Hosea terminating his marriage with Gomer. Then, can you believe it? In chapter 3, Jehovah comes to Hosea again and he tells the prophet that there's something else now he wants Hosea to do. Yes, Lord, what is it? Go and find Gomer. I don't know what Hosea said then. We'd have said, pardon or say it again it's painful for me Lord to speak about her I've just got over her and that sorry chapter in my life I'm thinking of marrying again and getting on with the business of rearing three children by myself go and find Goma the Lord said to Hosea and love her as the Lord loves Israel. So can you believe it without a word of exasperation or query or defiance? Hosea goes and he asks around. He hunts here and there and he makes inquiries and finally he finds her. And when he finds this used and abused woman, it's clear that she's up for sale. She's been selling her body for a couple of years, but now she herself seems to have got into debt, and the man to whom she owes a sum of money has demanded that she be sold as a slave to discharge her debt to him. It's something like that. We're not given the details. Goma was low before, but now Goma is in the pits. Can she get any lower than this? She stands on a platform, barely clothed, before the coarse gaze and ribaldry of a crowd of men, and she is being auctioned. The bidding is slow. The wear and tear of the last years have left their mark on her. And she's no bargain now for anybody. And she'll have to be looked after and housed and fed. And Hosea stands to one side. And he watches her and he sees the men ogling her. She's the mother of his children. 
And suddenly there is heard the, the voice of a new bidder. Fifteen shekels. Goma hears the shout. She recognizes the voice. Can't be him, the man she betrayed. Again, fifteen shekels and a bag of barley. Who's going to bid against Hosea the prophet who is buying his ex-wife? So Hosea goes to the auctioneer and he pays the price and he picks up the receipt and then he walks to the front and he tells Gomer quietly, come home. And he brings her home. Now, none of the neighbors were outraged when he divorced her. But imagine their reaction when he brings her home into their neighborhood, onto their street where their husbands and children will regularly see her. They have to draw water with her from the same well. And how would that fly with church members? when the former wife of the pastor, divorced for persistent adultery and prostitution, turned up in church on a Sunday morning and sat with the three children listening to her husband. I would hope that many would weep and they would go up to her and they would hug her and they would tell her it was good to see her back, that she belonged with them but others you know they would walk out at the end of the service and they would say to their husbands not right she's under discipline what do the elders think of this I'm not a happy bunny there's nothing outrageous about passing judgment on flagrant sinning not when we know the full story of uh, what we are who she is what she's done But welcoming back sincerely with open arms into the fellowship, a goma is a huge pill for some churchgoers to swallow. They gag each time they see her. They're planning now to think that they'll, they'll go up the road to another church. But the outrage, you see, the outrage is really this. But God approved that God demanded that Hosea treat his ex-wife like this. Take her back. The shock to our moral system is that God should still love. The exasperation is that God should come looking for a sinner like that. Because that is what We are told in this third chapter. It is not that Hosea went out looking for Gomer. It was God looking for her. To seek her and to save her. And he's not just looking for her. He's looking for you. And that's why he brought you here. This morning. And that's our message. The Son of Man came to seek and to save 
that which was lost. You should say, why should the creator of this universe care about the life of a woman like Goma? What's he doing here? I can understand him in heaven, uh, but here where men crucify other men and stone adulteresses, why does God bother with them? God's place is in glory. God's place is in a temple high and lifted up, his train filling the temple, the seraphim hiding their eyes and crying, holy, holy, holy. But what is God doing? A baby in a wilderness with the animals grunting all around. What is God doing in the obscurity of a village on a hillside with thorn bushes? Thirty years in Nazareth, helping his father make doors and plows. He made the stars. What is he doing? Making mortise and tenon joints. What is he doing in the wilderness? What is he doing there in the presence of Satan? What is he doing listening to Satan, tempting him? What is God doing letting a woman kneel at his feet and weep over them and undoing her hair and drying his feet with her hair. What is God doing kneeling down and washing the feet of his disciples? What is God doing running along the road to a a wasted, wicked boy and flinging his arms around him and crushing him and weeping over him and giving him all the blessings of sonship? What is God doing letting men drive nails through his hands? And through his feet. And letting them mock him for hours on a cross. That's the outrage. That he came seeking. He came saving. Gomers. And the outrage is when he finds us. That he should pay the price for us paupers. We should be paying it. And so they invent purgatory. And we should be making Uh, pilgrimage to Rome and we should see a door opened and we should have a hundred years taken off our time in purgatory when we walk through that door and we should be seeking for him we should be rejecting rejected by him we should be on the outside we should be in the dark we should be in the deafening silence We should be hearing the gnashing of teeth. We should be standing in the naked flame of the majestic rectitude of of God. But we're not. You're not. And I'm not. Why are we not? Why aren't we there? Why aren't we under judgment? Because he was. That's why. Because he was in the judgment. He interposed his own body, his own life. He stood in the sinner's place. He paid the price that we should have paid but couldn't. He became the scapegoat. He was outside the holy city. Its gates closed to sin and he was outside. He hung in the darkness, not us. He was forsaken by God, not us. And when he said why, heaven was silent. 
he chose to drink the cup of God's wrath, that we might drink the bread and wine, and that we might enjoy the marriage feast of the Lamb. He is there made sin, made guilt, every sin and all sin. He is there with nothing but wrath, and God turned from him, that we might have his smile and his love. That is how the tension gets resolved. That's how it got resolved by God, to magnify his love and magnify his righteousness. It wasn't by God overlooking or forgetting. And that tension, it runs from Genesis 3, it runs right through redemptive history. It's been resolved. It was resolved on Golgotha. The lamb was made sin and was condemned for the sin he bore that was not his own. He stood there. He remained there. He remained there on the cross because he loved Goma. And people who behave as disgracefully as Goma behaves. And God's holiness is satisfied by what Jesus did for Goma. It was an outrage that God brought Goma back. So what contribution do we make to the love of God and the benefits that his love brings us? Our exceeding need, our sin and our guilt, that is the handle by which we grasp the love of God. And that is all. God has loved, God has redeemed, God will receive all who come to him, all who receive him, he gives the right to be called the children of God. He gives Goma the right when she goes quietly back home with Hosea. And she can come into his presence. And she can look into the great smiling face of God and she can say, Abba, Father. And that is the outrageous and the impossible good news of the gospel. Can it be that I should gain an interest in the Saviour's blood? Love so amazing, so divine. Demands my soul, my life, my all. Amen. Lord, bless your word to us now. Help us to see your love and be moved by it and motivated by it to love and forgive like you love and forgive and to reach out as you reached out and to lay down our lives as Christ laid down his life for us. Help us to see it, we pray. And be lost in wonder, love and praise. In Jesus' name. Amen.